Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Louisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. Kia ora, listeners. Kia ora, Alison. Kia ora, Karen. So we got so caught up in our last show together where we talked about crime fiction that we... What did we do? Pumpkin? We, st- we, we staged a hold-up, didn't we, Honey Bunny? <laughs> yes, Honey Bunny, we did. No, sorry, you're Pumpkin. <laughs> so um, I hope besides our engineer here, Richard, that some people out there have picked up on this reference. So it's to the cinematic masterpiece of the 90s with that incredible cast, including three of my major favorites, of whom for once I'm remembering all three mm-hmm. names. Well, I hope. So Samuel L. Jackson. Am I right? Top, yes, top you guy. Are. Yeah. Harvey Keitel and Christopher Walken, yes. famous for appearing in so many bad movies, but in this case, a great movie. And the movie is Pulp Fiction. That's right. Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece, in my mind, lurid, violent, and funny. Yes. Funny being the part that people often forget. So, in fact, we are talking about a genre that we both love, which is pulp fiction. So, Pulp Fiction is that popular fiction from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s of the last century, two centuries ago. (laughs) We we did have a millennium in there, last century. Um, It's graphic, it's punchy, unpolished, and the term comes from the fact that this popular writing appeared at the time in magazines, in cheapo magazines, which used low-quality paper made from wood pulp. Just an interesting fact. Yes, it is. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, a lot of people, I think, a lot of people think of, um, like, sh- uh, shootouts. I think yes. of pulp, like, <laughs> like the little burst of blood in, that you see in the low, low, um, budget movies. Similar kind of. Feeling. And I think, um, a lot of people also thought that it just means trashy. Yes, pulp and trash. people think it means, oh yeah, you're right, pulp mm. like trash. And also, I think a lot of people think it only means crime, whereas actually there was a, uh, huge, um, genres, westerns and science fiction were huge in pulp fiction as well. That's right. And then there was another uh, uh, subcategory of, of pulp fiction um, really popular in the mid-20th century and it was lesbian pulp fiction. Um, they were so bad that they are, are really good. It was They were that kind of thing. Because um, the established publishers wouldn't wouldn't touch this type of fiction at the time um, but they've actually now become cult classics and we have lots of them in, in the library collection but they're um, distinguished really by their artwork and their illustrations lots of sort of longing and danger and intrigue and desire but all, all very unrequited mm-hmm. Is it so are we talking about those women with the um, sharply lifted eyebrows <laughs> <laughs> yes, that kind of Joan Crawford look. Is that the what we're seeing in these? Yeah, and those sort of unhappy endings. Oh, so really. this was before they were allowed to have the happy ending. Yeah, that's but at right. least it was actually acknowledging that these relationships existed, which was probably a pretty edgy thing in the, the time. Probably, yeah. Because what? When was the Well of Loneliness, the famous first lesbian oh. novel? It was 
1934, yes, I think. I think it was. Yeah, uh, which super depressing. Yeah, absolutely. I actually yes. had a thought about Pulp Fiction today as I was driving in about how one of the reasons why we might like it so much today is that if you think about how um, we think of the 60s as being the big break with the conformity that had come through in the years before, but Pulp Fiction was already up there pushing up against the boundaries of good taste and conformity, wasn't it? It yes. was sort of a precursor. Well before that. Um, and in, pre- um, in fact, perhaps one of the watershed moments for getting back to the women's um, roman- romantic pulp fiction was 1964 um, when Jane Rule wrote uh, Desert of the Heart. And that changed everything. Um, very, very well written. And in fact, it was picked up by the mainstream publishers. And it's been re- reprinted fairly recently. And you told me Jackie Kay wrote the introduction yes, to the new, to the reprint. Yeah, yeah. which is, is great. So that's become quite a classic. Um, and she really paved the way for uh, women's writing and what they call now uh, queer women's literature. And that was made into a movie. Yes, um, about 1985, I think. Um, uh, the movie was called Desert Hearts. Um, and that was a real sort of, perhaps, do we call it a coming-of-age movie or perhaps a rite of passage? Well, what was the age? The age. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if I say rite of passage, if you're in your early 20s, so that's the thing Conrad called the shadow line where you're leaving your childhood behind, you're moving to another age, into your adulthood. So that would be rite of passage. If they're early teens, then it would be more coming of age. So it was probably the rite of, rite of passage. For kind of. both the people in the book and the watchers, yes, readers. and the, the readers and the viewers of, of the, the film. So um, we're counting you as one of those watchers, viewers. Was That's that right. one of your yes, rites uh, of passage? Uh, How did you find the book? How did you, was it in the library? How did you come across yes, it? Yes, I think I, I found it in the, in the library. Someone would have recommended it yeah. to me. Perhaps a, a librarian, hopefully. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, certainly, a librarian wearing pearls. <laughs> yes, that's right. And a twin set. Yeah. <laughs> And I recently read a review of the latest volume of T.S. Eliot's letters. So these have been being published for some time. They're up to 8,000 pages, even though we've only gotten to the 30s. Oh, goodness. (laughs) But apparently T.S. Eliot was a fan or defended as a um, perfectly legitimate reading choice lesbian fiction. Didn't know that, I did didn't you? know no. that. No. Now, I'm not sure if he also defended suspense fiction. I think perhaps this might have laid outside mm-hmm. of his areas of interest, but um, I'm going to move to suspense fiction because I want to pay homage to mm. Cornell Woolrich, who's the master of suspense pulp fiction, probably known to most people, not known to most people, but if they do know of the movie Rear Window, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock movie, then they know, well, then I will tell you <laughs> that Cornell mm. Woolrich was the author of the story on which it was based. He's actually considered the father of the modern suspense story. And he has such a sad life story. So he, his ambition was to be a novelist a la F. Scott Fitzgerald. But he failed. His novels failed. And he did share with Fitzgerald, if not the writing talent, the fact that he had terrible problems with alcohol. Mm. He went to Hollywood and married the daughter of a movie producer. And that marriage failed, too. Um, Certainly due to, I think we don't have to wonder too much about why, since he was a closeted gay man who enjoyed putting on uniforms, not his own uniforms, and, and, and stalking the docks. You know, what is it called? Um, Draguet. What, how do you say it? Um, walking up and down the docks to looking for men to pick up. What do you call that? Oh, I'm come on. I'm not familiar it. with the, the practice. Um, 
<laughs> it's, well, it's dragué in French. Anyway, oh, he, so since we're talking about yes. noir, I think we yes. can go with the French. Um, and he um, then he went back to New York and ended up living in a hotel called the Hotel Marseille, which I'm picturing as a very seedy joint, with his mother, where he remained for the rest of his life. And even after his mother died, never moved from this hotel room and um, had had a leg amputated because he got gangrene. And anyway, he um, but when he died, he gangrene from drinking problems, from probably mm. diabetes caused by drinking. And when he died, he left a million dollars to Columbia University for a creative writing scholarship. Yeah, Goodness. so you see? Because I was thinking that the story would end that he died penniless. Alone and penniless. Well, yes, that's what everyone thought. a lot of um, these writers did. So yeah. they did. But um, he was actually, he's very successful in Pulp Fiction. And his crime fiction is probably the darkest that you'll ever encounter. So it's been given in more modern times where there's this need to give a name to everything. Um, paranoid Noir. That's a new one as well. Yes, we talked about all the different kinds of noir that there are. Mm. So, in fact, um, you know, noir being French for black, if you look at the common words in his titles, I looked over, we've got a big, thick book of his in the basement at Central Library. Um, The most common words I noticed going through all the stories, black, dead, lady, and night. Those were the four Mm. recurring words. Now, I didn't do a scientific (laughs) (laughs) examination, but a quick flip through. Um, Interestingly, the book has rental fiction stamped inside the cover because those were the days when you paid to read crime fiction because it wasn't worthy. It wasn't actually doing something for you. Were were they 20 cents? I thought it said 15 cents. I was trying to remember. It might have been raised to 20 cents. That's right. And I think there was an outcry when it went up. <laughs> there would have been. Well, that's a yes. big difference. Yes. Um, so anyway, so the books that we're talking, so um, rental fiction continued up through the 70s, mm. but the Cornell Woolrich era we're talking is the 30s. So this is Great Depression, the gangland, speakeasies, and automats. I'm putting in automats because with that big book of rental fiction, I refreshed my memory of Cornell Woolrich, and I read a story of his called Murder at the Automat. Mm. So do we know, does everyone in... New Zealand know what automats are? I don't think they do. So automats were kind of like an early version of the candy machine. They were New York City, and you could go in any time of the day or night because there were no waiters or waitresses. There were just a couple of guys working away in a back kitchen filling little boxes with sandwiches and coffee, and you could come in and put 20 cents into the slot, 15 cents. (laughs) Possibly an outcry when it went up to 20 cents. And then the little door would open, and you could pull out your sandwich and eat it at a little table. Very Edward Hopper looking, if you can picture it. Oh, there's yes. an Edward Hopper yes. painting of an automat somewhere. I um, can't imagine they were very nutritious sandwiches. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember now in the story what the sandwich was. So this, what the sandwich anyway. was, I can't remember if it was bologna or bologna, bologna. as we call it. Yeah. Um, but I think, but it definitely, I'm not sure, it could have been that, it could have been ham, but what it definitely had in it was that it was laced with cyanide. Oh, and the plot of, of the movie is that his wife um, actually gets a guy... Uh, by batting her eyelashes probably, to go in and slip a cyanide-laced sandwich Uh into the little compartment where she knows it's the last one. Her husband always goes in late at night to have something to eat, and he'll pick the cyanide-laced sandwich. And um, the, so he does, he actually does, and the the police come in. So in those days, the police were dicks. 
Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, why am I laughing? I was I giving you the chance to have a reaction to that. <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh. Well, it is funny. So the police yeah. were called dicks. They might have been dicks as well, but actually mm. they were called dicks. And they say things in so in this um, in the scene where they find the guy on the table who's died from eating a cyanide sandwich. Mm. They say they talk about the fact that his a miser. So the reason, the actual reason, the wife kills him is that he never gives her any spending money. She uh. has to like screw the light bulb in after mm. he leaves the house. <laughs> And so the policeman says, a miser, eh? They always end up behind the eight ball. Ah. So that's, um, I looked it up in the hard-boiled slang dictionary, which you can find online, and that means in a difficult position. So um, I'm, I'm big on hard-boiled mm. slang, so I've got another one ready for you here, Allison. So are we Jake, Allison? Yeah, now, I can't remember what that means. I've gone blank. <laughs> Oh, we Jake. You're yes. not supposed to have to know it. It's oh, hard boiled slang. Oh, so not, I don't know if I'm Jake. It's not it, one. Yeah, you don't yes. know, but I will tell you, I think we are. So, are we Jake means are we set? Oh, we're set. And yes. the question is, are we Jake to move on to our next ah. type of pulp fiction? We are for that. Yes. So, um, the uh, next type um, is hard boiled fiction and you know for the longest time up until quite recently i always thought that this was called hard bitten fiction but you have recently um put you straight yes put me straight on that one (laughs) not sure what the slang is for that but anyway yeah (laughs) um so we can talk turkey about the hard boiled fiction so the hard boiled hero is um a detective who's become cynical really by seeing too much violence and organized crime and and corruption and um the perhaps the the father of the hard hard boiled uh genre um would be uh dashiell hammett um great writer now i started reading hammett when I was in my teenage years, um, partly because I'd been reading books by his longtime love, Lillian Hellman. But um, Hammett... His so, dame. His longtime his, oh, dame. His dame, <laughs> yes. So we're looking at um, books written in the 30, 1930s at this stage. So Hammett um, was actually a private investigator um, for the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency in San Francisco, but he'd um, joined the army when World War I broke out and um, he came back from the war um, in France with a terrible case of tuberculosis. So he was never really well enough to, to work full time again as a, as a private eye. So he decided to take up writing for a living um, and he'd taken a journalism class and was told to write what you know. And so he did, was, he did he take the class from Ernest Hemingway? <laughs> yes, well, there's some link. Yeah, there. yeah. I think he might. There is. There's definitely the H, the Hammett, Hemingway. Um, Tough man there. both. Yes, yes. And he's been compared to, to Hemingway by a lot of critics. So he was praised for his gritty realism. Um, so the, the books of his I know best um, are the Maltese Falcon, um, which featured Private Eye Sam Spade and the alluring Miss Wonderly. Um, and the other one would be The Thin Man, um, which featured the characters Nick and Nora Charles. Both of them are really well written. The urban America of the 1930s is sort of um, described in you know, really crisp, sort of lean prose, 
the um, characters do seem to live on cigarettes and alcohol. So you wonder really how any of them survived. No, they also had that black coffee, you know. Oh, the black coffee. When they had to go out and talk to the policemen or something. Yes, because you'd have to sober up really quickly. Um, So his books are really of their time. Um, They are probably terribly sexist, but I think you've got to view them in the lens of that that time and um i'm i'm a fan yeah they are considered um all of the writing that period of course is is sexist yeah as it also has you'll run into if the edition hasn't been boulderized um uh, derogatory terms for people of color or for um, jewish people it's um it's an unfortunate thing but that is the time period in which they were writing and the slang interestingly um i read in that hard-boiled slang dictionary i was consulting that dashiell hammett who's considered so authentic because of the fact that he'd been a pinkerton detective was want to consult slang dictionaries himself oh yeah, he's ready to do his yes. research. And, um, of course, in the slang dictionary, one of the top terms that comes out that you, um, that really, uh, practically everyone's heard by now, I think, is the big sleep. Ah, yes. As a metaphor for yeah. death, he's sleeping the big sleep. And I learned from that same hard-boiled slang dictionary that it was actually written, coined by Raymond Chandler. I thought it was an old underworld term. He's sleeping the big sleep. But um, it was it sprang from the fertile brain of Raymond Chandler. Mm. So um, Raymond Chandler is actually my... It's interesting when you said you started reading Dashiell Hammett in your teens. I started reading Raymond Chandler in my teens. And that was because of the movie Mean Streets. So I knew this was a quote from something. I'm going, Mean Streets, what's that from? What's that from? So I consulted my father, as you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) as we do. And um, and he knew it immediately. And he said, oh, you know, it's that famous passage by Raymond Chandler in The Simple Art of Murder. And it it goes, I always remember the, the line, first line. As my rite of passage, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. So Raymond Chandler was the inventor of the tough but poetic detective, who was Philip Marlowe. You can see in the last name there, Marlowe, a um, touch of his love for English literature. And um, there, so his detective, unlike Dashiell Hammett's, who I believe were tough all the way through. Yes, tough and smoldering and sort of... Yeah, just tough, really. Tough. Um, And Philip Marlowe, however, is a romantic. And he gets into a lot of situations. He gets himself into situations because of his romantic side. But he's also, this is what makes the book so fun. So they're very vintage. And they've got this wisecracking of the period, which I love. My grandmother was from that period. She was the best wisecracker ever. And he's got these things like, so one of my favorite is um, in The Big Sleep, his most famous book, is when he says, uh, neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way I came in. In, although only one of them was dead. <laughs> and then the other one, just so when he gets handed the keys to this big expensive car and he says, the big foreign car drove itself, but I held the wheel for the sake of appearances. <laughs> That's in Farewell, My yeah. Lovely, yeah. And he has these plots. So the plots are, are make no sense. You know, there's, there's no point to them at all. In fact, when Howard Hawks was making the movie The Big Sleep, there's a story that he had to call up Raymond Chandler and ask him what the plot meant at a certain point, <laughs> a certain plot twist. And Chandler said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> He's, his famous line was, you know, when you're in doubt, when you get to a point in your story where you find yourself in doubt, just have a man come through the door with a gun. 
But the thing that's that a good I, rule for life, is really, it, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes. Perhaps the gun could be um, metaphoric. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, just make something happen. So um, you'll always regret the things you don't do more than the things you mm. do. Isn't that right? So um, what I really loved about Raymond Chandler, of course, was his. Well, of course, I'm going to tell you now. You don't know. It's not of course yet. Um, is the Southern California ambience. So Raymond Chandler actually came from an English family and gone to English public school, but he ended up in Southern California in Los Angeles in Hollywood where he went to write for the movies and um, he has this wonderful feeling for that Los Angeles um, you know when you see those photos of Los Angeles sunsets and the palm trees and the red sky and he's got these descriptions of the Santa Ana wind which is this famous Southern California wind which is very hot and dry and comes blowing off the desert and he talks about how when the Santa Ana blows meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands necks <laughs> so, <laughs> he was always in it for effect and the, and the books are really full of effect and so Raymond Chandler also like Cornell Woolrich lived with his mother his whole life well not his whole life his mother's whole life and then after his mother died he quickly married another mother who was sissy who was 18 years older than he was and um, had purple hair <laughs> so his friends say and um, he has a problem also with female characters like his male characters you can clearly see he's in love with all of them even the gangsters even the baddies Philip Marlowe especially there's the long goodbye which is my favorite of his books, which is the entire book, is a is a celebration of a strong, almost homoerotic friendship between two men. And the women are all tarantulas and um, always bad and homicidal, and you can never trust them. Just the real, true femme fatale. And how would you say the um, femme fatale in English? Mm, do you think? That's a tough one. I'm trying to think. What would my father say? <laughs> Probably killer dame. What do you oh, think? Oh, yes. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, noir, speaking of um, translations into English or French, we talked about that, meaning black. So, what's the difference between the fiction we've looked to up till now and noir? Allison, Miss yes, Expert in Crime Fiction. Isn't it sort of about how the it's all the book looks actually at the perpetrator oh, yeah. more than or the victim? It's not the hero is no longer the That's detective, right? Because I I had gone to landscape again, but it is it's more about the it's not necessarily about the how they solve the crime or the the police, is it? Or the yeah. detective? Well, there is a thing about um, when you said landscape, I was thinking in a metaphorical term that's very appropriate. So there's the deterministic. I think the thing about noir is that it's very, no matter how good or how bad you are, it's sort of like events kind of move on by themselves in a meaningless universe, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of like a, a, a precursor to existentialism <laughs> in, in some ways. And But there's also a strong streak of self-destructive isn't there? Yes, that's right. So um, the noir, the one, the person who's seen as one of the creators of the roman noir, the noir novel, is James M. Cain. Oh, yes. Who most people know as the author of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Yes, which and was made in, into a, a couple of movies, wasn't it? It was made into two or three Do movies. So it's a very um, usual plot. So man and woman become lovers. Woman convinces the man to become involved in something sinister, usually criminal, often murder. And then the man becomes destroyed by his involvement with the woman. I think this is a yes. <laughs> in a nutshell. Very explicit, very stark. Even I just I, so I just reread The Postman Always Rings Twice. doesn't have that same vintage feel as Chandler. It's very direct. 
fact. And in fact, James M. Cain was a journalist, started as a journalist. But um, sex, violence, greed, lust. And um, do you want to know what I found out? I'm rereading The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm. What, um, what that phrase refers to. Oh, yeah. So The Postman Always Rings Twice, which always meant so much to me as a title, um, didn't it always have a... Oh, it's a wonderful yeah, title. It's so wonderful. It? I'm sure yeah. everyone's interpreted yes. in their own way. So apparently the book was first, James M. Kane wanted to call it Barbecue. Barbecue, actually, oh. which possibly would have been the name of the diner. I mean, I don't remember it being cited as that. But anyway, um, but the publisher didn't like that title. And then he heard a story being told by a friend, and he thought, this will make a perfect title for my book, which is that in um, England, in Europe, the postman would come to your house, and if he was just leaving your mail in the mailbox, he would give your doorbell a ring, so you'd know it was there. But if he had a telegram that you had to sign for, he would ring twice. And so, a telegram was always bad news, wasn't yeah, it? exactly, mm. exactly. So, um, in the movie... So who was that? I'm, I saw, I remember the early one was Lana Turner and John Garfield. Yeah. Lana at her best. Oh, yes. And then the one I saw had Jessica Lange and um, Jack, it was Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah, Jack it? Nicholson. Yeah, right. Perfect. So here mm. you go, you know, in the timelessness of noir, like um, Jack Nicholson, who is so much for me of the modern age, mm. um, starts with Easy Rider when we all began to know who he was. So definitely not... Um, oh, actually, well, I have to say Chinatown, one of the greatest noir modern movies. So, That's yeah, true. he certainly walked away with that movie, I thought. Mm. Jessica was good, too, but... It was very creepy, but um, something quite fabulous about it. And the... Um, the other actor who walks away with all the movies is, of course, Humphrey Bogart. Oh, yes. The Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon yeah. and The Big Sleep. Oh, yes, of yeah. course. So The Big Sleep was the one that um, he was in with Lauren Bacall when Howard Hawks, the director, um, signed. I think that was actually where he met Lauren Bacall. It was certainly the first time they worked together. Howard Hawks had a soft spot, uh, to put it kindly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for well, Actually, to put it in a noir sense, he was probably lusting after yes. <laughs> Lauren Bacall. And he put her in the movie with Humphrey Bogart and Humphrey Bogart and she fell in love. And the rest is history, yeah. isn't it? And the Maltese Falcon was John Huston, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. And there was, what was the thing you were telling me about the frosted glass? Oh, that's right. And it's a classic sort of trope or literary device where they, um, you always had the frosted glass door with a, to have a silhouette of a woman. In the, in the movie scene. In the movie. Yeah. There's a, you can see that there's a silhouette of a woman. Um, so that would have been, uh, what we'd call a trope nowadays, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. The dame, the dame crossing her legs in high heels in the waiting for the private dick in his office. And the the modern um, well, the modern ones um, have the the frosted glass door, but they don't have the that's um, alluring silhouette of the dame. It's just frost. So yes. a modern one being of so, your favourites. Yeah, so I'd be thinking um, Robert Galbraith's um, the Cormoran Strike books, and of course Robert Galbraith is also known as J.K. Rowling, and um, oh, they're fabulous. Really enjoy those. If anyone's wanting to read a, a hard-boiled detective novel for the modern age, I, I would recommend Robert Galbraith. They're um, not sexist like the old ones, and they're far more diverse, and the women are, are quite empowered as well. 
So um, I think the name Corman Strike is already sort of a giveaway as to what kind of um, noir we're going to be reading yes. here, isn't it? Because they've all got those names. I think of Mickey Spillane, who I've not actually personally read, but, you know, the hero of Mickey Spillane novels was Mike Hammer. Oh, yes. And then there was John Shaft. Was yes. the I can't remember the name of the author of that one, but um, John Shaft of the famous movies that made that, you know, that famous the soundtrack, Shaft. the first yes. fun music, yeah. And um, Easy Rollins. Sam Spade, of course. Sam Spade, yes. So yes. Spade, Hammer, Shaft. I think yes. we're having a. <laughs> yes. I think we're we getting don't. a pattern here. <laughs> but then there was Nick and Nora, though, that you were talking oh, about. Yes. The Thin Man. Yes, with their dog Esther, who um, was a, a wire head terrier. Um, in fact, my mum had a dog called Asta growing up, and Asta was named after the, the dog in The Thin Man. So did you call her up and check on that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and she confirmed that to me. But there was something else that you had about another dog. There was oh, you had yes, because there was um, Lou Archer was a, um, a detective. Um, and I once met two dogs. One was called Lou and one was called Archer. That's Ross McDonald, Lou Archer. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was in the one that he was, they made into a movie. I think Paul Newman played Lou Archer, I'm oh, quite sure. Yeah, right. Blue-eyed, tufted. Detectives. Yes, but anyway, my favorites. Um, well, my favorites. So we you know Hammershaft and all those are mm. great. But the femme fatale names. Oh, we've got to yes. put. We've got a minute left here to do a quick salute to Miss Wonderly, Wonderly that you mentioned. Yes, with her beautiful eyelashes. With her beautiful eyelashes, and in Raymond Chandler's The Little Sister, the femme fatale is called Orphamy Quest. Mm. Sort of orphan sounds kind of like orphan. Orphan. Yes. Yeah, and she bats her eyelashes, comes from Kansas, and says she doesn't really know. She needs. This help actually turns out to be a murderess, um, a blackmailer, um, a tarantula, as we mm. were saying. So, um, yeah, so we can be, we can actually pick those up instead of trying to speak in slang that we didn't so well at. <laughs> we could call, you can be Miss Wonderly, I'll be Orphamy, and we'll say that we think that this show was eggs in the coffee. I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Which means, I'll just let you all know, that it was um, a. a what do we? What, what do you call it? It went pretty. Does it mean it went it means, pretty well? It went well. It was easy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, tune in next week for another exciting show. And um, thanks for having been with us today. That's been really fun. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Hide it off. Hide it off. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day.